So we've been talking through the Declaration of Independence, and, and we see this foundation that they're laying and some really quite unique ways of addressing a revolution. And and it's interesting because it's it's addressed to the world, and obviously the king is a recipient of it. They send it to the king. How does the king respond to this? Well, it, um, first of all, it took months to get it to the king because of the transportation. Uh, many times we are fascinated with, gosh, who's the guy who had to give this to the king? And probably, A little harder than email. <laughs> yeah, went through a lot of different people, and the last guy probably didn't want to read it to him. He just handed him a piece of paper and then ran out of the room. I don't know. <laughs> um, but they didn't really respond in a way that you would expect. Um, there, there wasn't somebody sent over to debate. There was no truce while we talked this through. Basically, they just said, this is nothing. This is a rebellion. It's like a mosquito running around my head. And I'm just going to swat it. And so he just sent over more troops, more ships, more Navy, more artillery, and just figured, let's accelerate the war and see what we can do. We've been in the war for a year. So this was kind of a lost cause on our side, and everybody around the world thought so, including King George. Welcome to the Legacy Project Podcast, a conversation that utilizes early American history as a way to explore and sustain our legacy of liberty. This series is intended to be enjoyed sequentially. Follow along with us as we discuss the foundational ideas of America that transformed the course of history and left each of us a legacy of liberty. Hi, this is Philip, and welcome to the Legacy Project, episode four. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about the first few principles in the principles section of the Declaration of Independence. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple more principles and getting into how how the, the government begins to form and some of the principles behind what government is and why government exists. So Stan, here we are in episode four, and we've made it all the way through, I think, about two and a half sentences of a declaration. Yes. So a lot packed in here. Could you give us a quick recap of what we've gone over so far in, in the premise section and then in the principles section of the declaration? Sure. Well, as we talked about, the we've, we've kind of um, abridged the declaration into four parts, premise, principles, grievances, and declaration. So we went through the premise, um, pretty self-explanatory. It was the introduction of natural law, lots of theology combined with some philosophy and a little bit of ideology. But it pretty much established this is our thought process. This is what we believe to be the state of human nature as well as uh, God's introduction to the whole thing, God's nature. Following that are the principles. The principles are introduced with we hold these truths to be self-evident the truths being principles, and these are now self-evident. They're not crown-sourced. They're coming from these guys' understanding of what truth is and what the source of truth is. So the first one is all men are created equal. And again, we get into some theology there because the equality of all men, not necessarily gender, but all people, the equality is now derived and comes from the Creator. And that's where the accountability to our equality is as well. 
The second truth is that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable is not a very common word, but it means inherent and non-transferable. But again, we're talking about a theological source for our rights. It is bestowed upon us by the creator or God. So we have all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Third truth is, and among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we talked about life as a right from God, and that right is basically civil rights as we know them today. It's uh, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom to uh, defend yourself, Second Amendment type of things. Uh, We also talked about the pursuit of happiness, which was originally the pursuit of property. And we changed that word due to the controversy of the northerners who were opposed to slavery. And they didn't want property in here because they felt like that might imply that we were supporting a policy of slavery. And so they changed that to happiness. But it needs to be understood in economic terms. So it's um, self-sufficiency, your creative nature, um, intellectual property, uh, actual tangible property as well. So happiness is more of an economic concept than it is a self-fulfillment, which really didn't even exist then. The foundation stone for all of this is the word liberty. And liberty is um, really defined by the founders in two forms, one philosophical and one theological. We use a star that uh, has five points on it. And in the philosophical, we start at the very top with individual freedom. Point number two is restrained by. Point number three is self-control. Point number four is grounded upon principles. So it's self-control is uh, restraining our individual freedom but our self-control is grounded upon principles. In the theological definition, it is free will that is directed toward virtue that is defined by faith. So now we're talking about theological liberty, and they both make sense um, in in the definition category, uh, but because we were also going through a philosophical movement and a theological movement, we define liberty in those two forms. So let's go and talk about truth number four. So this falls right after the the rights that it describes there of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it says this, it says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Yes, and... That's really an upside-down way of thinking of how society is structured. Government is now structured to secure the individual rights. Before that and throughout history, it's always been rulers handing out privileges or rights, and they're not really there to satisfy the governed. They're there to satisfy themselves, and whoever around them is going to be a crony. Interesting, let's take a couple of short cuts to look at this. Secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers. So this is 
the reference to justice. So where does their justice come from in the eyes of the founders? Where is this whole idea of being just powers? Well, it's interesting because the word rights, this is sort of the second time that it's mentioned. And you have rights up above, which are unalienable, or, or like you said, non-transferable inherent rights. Where do those come from? From the creator. Yes. So the rights come from the creator, and the purpose of the government is to not provide them. That's what the creator does. Yes. But to secure them. And, and so in that case, I think then the just powers has the same source. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think this is really the first uh, primarily ideological statement, because now we're talking about how do we organize the principles that we just walked through. And so in order to do that, you, you really have to look at how the society is going to be formed and ordered in a completely different context because everything else is coming from a creator, and now we have to have people that are forming governments, but what their intention is is now to secure these God-given rights. So completely different form, but the people who are going to be in charge of that have to have certain amount of virtue, which one of virtues would be justice, and so they're going to exercise their decisions based on a, a just uh, analysis of what the problems are and then make sure that they're doing whatever they can to secure the rights of the people. Power is coming from the people. The consent of the governed is basically uh, an indication that the power isn't from the governor, it is now from the governed, who is then selecting representatives, not necessarily leaders or, ruder, or rulers. And, and their power is just because it's coming from the, the consent of those who are yes they're governing yeah. over yeah this whole idea we talked a bit about this last week but it's so transformational this idea that rights don't come from the government they don't come from the king it's not the government who tells me I can own a piece of land or, or the king right it's, it's not the king telling me I can open up my shop or that I can can travel here or go there or talk to this person or associate with this person that's a totally revolutionary idea at that time because at that time it would be the king saying you can have this or you can't have this and, and determining those those rights. Well, no society operated the way these guys are visualizing this society. And it isn't just a visualization from just sitting around with an academic uh, thought process because really this is how they had lived because of the lack of... Um, influenced by the crown because of the sparse distances and the rugged terrain and just the people had to go out and make their own way. The uh, cultural characteristics we talked about in the first series about the um, individual, um, rugged individualism, excuse me, and then uh, social self-sufficiency. So the, the colonists have lived this way. And so what they're saying is we don't want this phony governor or this uh, crown telling us what to do. We have these rights and we've already established that we can survive and we can thrive. So kind of get out of the way and then we'll put together a system that basically reduces the role of government and raises the role of the people. So, so this may be getting ahead of ourselves, but when we look at these rights, and, and one of those being liberty, and of course we understand liberty to not just be individual freedom, but there's a constraint upon that freedom, Yes, meaning a self-control with, with principles there. Um, we, understanding that idea of liberty, is does this work? 
if you don't have people that love liberty or or don't have self-control, you could say? No, it doesn't work. It won't work. And um, that's uh, part of the founders fully recognize that. Observers from offshore that came and looked and marveled at America and said, how does this work? Why is this working? I think they all recognize that the ideals of liberty, both philosophical and theological, uh, but the theology was very important. The, the the idea of virtue and to try to aspire to be better people and better to your neighbor, better to your family, better to whoever you're working with, etc. That That really was how this was going to work. It wasn't going to be, if the people are going to be where the power lies, then the people have to have certain characteristics. And at this particular time, the founders felt like the people of this nation had these characteristics that could fulfill this vision. So this, this truth number four, would, would you label this philosophical, theological, ideological? Where would you... Um... Well, it's primarily ideological. So it's talking about how we're going to govern ourselves and man's relationship with government. So, But it's completely upside down from man's relationship with government from all past societies. It's taking sort of the, the theological and philosophical from all the previous statements and then bringing those into an ideological, how do we form this? Yeah. Which then the next, the next truth really flows right into that. Well, and it's an implementation. As, as much as it is a truth, it's also, here's our strategy for implementation. Read that truth number five. It says that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Yes. So I'm going to work through that, that when any, any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, what ends? What are they talking about, these ends? Well, securing the rights given by God, meaning life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, are some of those, right? So Yeah, yeah. So the, these ends are the first four truths. Yeah. So if the government isn't subscribed and isn't aligned with those four truths, then it is becoming destructive of these ends. And now it is the right of the people. So what, if it's a right, then it's a God-given right of the people to alter or abolish it. No government's going to give a right to alter or abolish it. No. Right? So it has to be somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it has to start with the people, and it has to start with what they consider to be their right. And so they have to be able to discern how the government is operating, and is it actually operating by the principles that we had put forth in the, in the earlier sessions. So they have a right to abolish it, or they can alter it, institute a new government is basically how they said it. And what's this government going to be? It's, it's not going to be new principles, new foundation. It's going to be laying its foundation on such principles and then organizing or, or ordering the powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Safety, you can just use the same as life. Safety would be a civil right. And so it's back to your life and the pursuit of happiness so government is now going to be organized under those prior principles and under truth number four is how that is going to be securing those rights. And so this is an implementation. You, you can take this and then you can say, okay, well, how are we going to 
get the details sorted out in order to implement this? Well, this is kind of a guideline for how that can happen. And and here they're really then laying a foundation for what they're about to walk into in the document. But they're giving the argument as to why they believe they have a right to do what they're going to do. And and they talk about a government or any form of government, government becoming destructive to these ends, yes. which leads into the, the grievances, the next section, yes. which goes through all the ways that the current form of government at that time was was not securing rights for people, but was tyrannizing and, and destroying those ends. Well, in the next section, and, and we'll read the introduction to that, uh, but I think it's basically a list of kind of legal uh, observations. You're breaking the rules of society. So the king is now being uh, shown that these are the grievances. Uh, more than the king, it's really the people. So now we're legitimizing what we're doing from a legal standpoint. But the, the introduction or the next paragraph uh, is a very fascinating paragraph, and we ought to go through that, and then we'll start to look at a couple of the grievances that I think uh, really show that this uh, is a legitimate revolution. So I'll read that. It says, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more, more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Yeah. It's old-style language, so it's hard to follow, but it's it's so rich. This, this whole section to me is really an amazing uh, introduction to this grievance section. I, I love the end, and let these facts be submitted to a candid world. So it's really something that is now being, the audience has enlarged. It's no longer the crown. It's not exclusively to the people. It's now the entire world. Yes. Which, um, again, you go back to our universal we. We, the, you know, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We determined that was kind of taking a universal approach to all humanity. Now they're out there with this, uh, let these facts be submitted to a candid world. And again, we've mentioned this already, but it's just interesting to see how here we are several paragraphs in. They haven't mentioned the colonies yet, and they haven't mentioned the king yet. Right. It's all truths. It's yeah. all, it's totally different than I'm mad at you because you did this to me. Yes. Sort of an, they're not coming in with an irrational approach. It's this sort of rational argumentation for, for the basis of it. And then now you, you finally, quite a ways into the document, they mentioned themselves and the king. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it is uh, the, the tactics of how this is being presented um, from a legal lawyer standpoint 
it's it's really fascinating. So you start with principles. You don't start with shouting and accusations, and you know it basically is some ideas that are put forth. Our, ours is a revolution based on ideas, which most revolutions aren't based on ideas. It's based on get this guy out of here and replace him with somebody else, or it's uh, ours is very unique in that way. Let me go back to the very beginning of this particular section, though. Some of this is just the most fascinating language. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. So they're basically saying, you know, we don't, we're not just jumping into this because we're kind of emotionally attached. We're, we've been thinking about this. This is a year and three months into a delegation of representatives of the colony. So this this Continental Congress has been in in session for a very long time. I don't know of too many people or organizations or whatever that take a year and three months to produce a document after that much debate, particularly when you have 56 people with completely different backgrounds involved. So they're just making sure that the population knows that, hey, we're just not doing this for 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 grins. We're doing this because we've taken a serious look at it. And the next part of that sentence, and accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. What, what do you think that means, Philip? Well, it seems to be going back to a bit of a, the laws of nature section, this mankind's nature. But it, it's, I, I think it means that our tendency is to put up with it. Because the risk of what they're doing, as we'll get down to in, in the end here, is it's everything. Yes. <laughs> and so I think our tendency is to say, well, for the sake of my happiness or life or children or family or, or whatever, we'll just put up with people. Um, and, and so it is interesting that they observe that human nature. Mm-hmm. As, well, they recognize this incrementalism, uh, which... Most people, well, I'll put up with that. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And, well, you know, I, I wish they weren't doing that, but I'll put up with that. And so they're just letting evil start to take a stronger and stronger hold, is how these founders are putting it. And they're noticing that people are more disposed to suffer that than to accept change. What this says to me is the founders are saying, we know what's coming and we are doing something about it. We're not going to be in this category of just more and more tyranny slowly taking us over. It's the frog in the pot concept. Yes, you know, absolute, absolute despotism is what they yeah. call it, right? Yeah. So they, they know if they lose this war and they don't reestablish this, the colonies will be under really, really harsh treatment. And um, so they're, they're basically asking the population to rally behind them in order for this to take place and to encourage them that they shouldn't just be suffering evils. You don't need to be suffering evils because we have a new set of ideas and ideals that we can form a government and we can operate our society under. So it's just interesting that this kind of is the transition between truths and this list of 27 specific grievances. So, so what are some of the grievances? Um, I, I know we don't have time to go through all of them today, but what are some of the grievances and some of the main things that were really um, the issues they were facing? Well, most people uh, 
first of all, when you ask, well, what are the grievances? They say, well, no taxation without representation, which isn't listed as a grievance. But the implication of that is that it's an economic revolution because we're being overtaxed and overoppressed, and uh, you know the financial status of the crown is to oppress us financially. When in fact, like the Boston Tea Party on the tax on teas was about half of what it was in England. So we were paying a much less tax. It was an insignificant amount of tax was being paid. Um, but that spurred the no taxation without representation. The issue there is the representation. And so that's what we're talking about. And as you go through all of these grievances, you will notice that it really is more about moral issues. It is about um, uh, inappropriate uh, acts of war against the people. I mean, they would capture people just in the towns, and then they would take them and put them on ships and make them part of the British Navy. So you'd become slaves of the, of the, the military. They would uh, go into houses and they didn't need permission to just take over all of your property. So your property rights were not rights at all. They were privileges and they were taking them back. So you have these moral issues. You have these war issues. You have immigration is embedded in here um, because the king was bringing more and more people over that were loyal to the crown as opposed to assimilating into the colonies. And so they became loyalists. And he was not allowing people that wanted to come over here, which originally the American citizens were coming over here to build a new life. The king is now stopping that kind of immigration and requiring immigration that is not to build a new life, but to support the existing crown. So It's, it's interesting. I like that you say it's not primarily an economic, even though there's economic impact of, of it, it's not primarily an economic revolution. Probably it could best be called a, a liberty revolution. Give me liberty. That's yes. and, and it's, again, not individual freedom. Because even when you look for the grievances, a lot of them are, are about them wanting to establish laws and judicial systems yes. and, and bodies of government so that there would be a, a justice system and so that there would be a securing of those rights for everyone there. Yeah. And and that's liberty yes. again. It's it's not just individual freedom. It wasn't that they were just against. They weren't just stick it to any form of government or the man type of a concept. It was a um, a love for liberty and and a, a desiring to form a people and a government mm-hmm. that was a totally different yeah. system. Yeah. Well, and the king had abused it. I mean, the king. Uh, one of the grievances is about how judges are under the control of the king and the crown. And that's how they get their pay. And if they make wrong decisions, then they're jeopardized to be fired. And the founders, the, the, the colonists, see that as an injustice. Because now you really don't have blind justice. You have justice that's biased towards what the king wants you to do. Or you lose your life or you lose your job. So they're, they're getting into some deep uh, structural issues relative to how a monarchy and how a uh, ruler-type subject-type government operates, and they're recognizing, pointing out these deficiencies and labeling them as grievances, legitimate grievances. So I know we're not going to read through the the grievances just for the sake of time, but it, it seems clear that what the colonies are saying is the king is destroying our rights. 
Yes. And and he's so then what happened with those? Where did those grievances end up? How did that influence then the the continuing formation? Well, it's what I would encourage people to do is read the grievances, but also read the Bill of Rights at the same time. Because once we put a constitution together, then the first 10 amendments we call the Bill of Rights. And it basically, you can connect all of the Bill of Rights directly with the list of grievances. So they didn't forget it, and they didn't uh, consider it to just be, you know, a list of complaints. They saw this as really an affront to the form of government that they wanted to put together. And so the Bill of Rights basically is the manifestation of the list of grievances. So from a 10,000-foot perspective, here we have these 56 guys who have shown up from these 13 colonies, and they're already in war for quite some time, pretty much a losing war. They won a little bit in the beginning around Boston, and now they've just been retreating to the south this whole time, and they're pretty much losing. And they begin to write these, these lofty truths and put them to paper, but obviously... There's a cost to this. What's the cost? What what are they giving up by participating in this? Well, the next thing that we need to look at is the uh, the, the declaration section of this, this document. Uh, it's kind of the acquisition of liberty. What are they putting on the table? And what is it that they're really after here um, with these declarations? And the time to do that is the next session because it's uh, another several paragraphs that we will take apart and understand what they're doing. But they, there was a cost, and they recognized there was a cost, but they also knew that the acquisition of liberty was worth the cost. Mm-hmm.